Welcome from all of us to all of you. If you want to know how glad we are to have you with us, just you listen. Hi, and welcome to the Crisis on Infinite Midlands podcast. I'm Rob. I'm Amanda. It is episode 106, coming at the tail end of one of those weeks where my day job, your day, both our day jobs basically exploded in our fucking faces. It was a week. Yeah, (laughs) a strange week of long, unexpected hours and rage and... (laughs) And through it all, uh, realizing at least toward the end of the week, yeah, all right, we're doing a show that's kind of different than one that we normally do. Mm. And so, yeah, a certain number of days of 5 a.m. reading comic books and writing notes just because I don't know when the hell else I'm going to do it. (laughs) And the show's going up no matter what when it goes up. So This is happening. (laughs) Yeah, it's been kind of fucked. And it's weird because if you've listened to the show for any length of time, you know that we normally pick some current news item uh some current show some current book movie uh movie and that is our main topic for the week that we talk about and then we talk about a couple comic books yes uh this week was kind of weird in that we were fully intending to do that and then one evening uh we were listening to uh another comics podcast one that we both like and i'm not going to name it because the point here is not, you know, oh, they're wrong. Fuck them. Right. It's a show that I like, and I really respect the host. Plus, they're a lot more popular than we are. I mean, <laughs> they could crush us. Just absolutely crush yeah, us. when the, the not, re- not about being a clickbaity thing. It's about, a, okay, we've heard what you have to say now. Here's where we're going to come from. Well, yeah, it's, <laughs> and it's a show that part of what they do, and just based on this, you might guess what it is. They rank comic book stories. They just rank them against each other. And one that came up, and I'm surprised it took as long as it did because the show that's been around for a while was Alan Moore and Brian Bolland's uh, Batman the Killing Joke. Mm. Now, the reality is these hosts are millennials, uh, or at least as Generation far as we know, Y. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, based on what some of them talk about, they're, they're definitely probably 10, maybe 12 or 15 years younger than. We are. I think we you're are. legally allowed to call them millennials. Millennials is supposed to be like 1980 to like 2000 or something like that. This is America. I can call them fucksticks if I feel like it. It doesn't. I'm <laughs> just we trying to do that because it wouldn't be respectful. <laughs> I'm just I'm trying to narrow down what their ages. That's all I want you to do. Got it. But uh, they're clearly younger than we are and have a somewhat different point of view based on that, which is completely understandable. That's the way the world works. Yeah. No, the the old are supposed to be crushed under the boot heel of the young and shuttled into a home someplace. All I ask is just give me a comfortable diaper and fill my bottle with whiskey. <laughs> I'm I'm prepared to be shuttled to the dustbin of history based on the way this week went. I frankly welcome it if we can get that to happen sooner rather than later. Yeah, for the love of God, at the very least the whiskey. My preference, though, is not to be left naked on a tarp just because nobody wants to clean me. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> it was going to be a birthday surprise. <laughs> Clearly, I misread this situation entirely. You sure did. <laughs> well, just now I got to pay the spectators off. To- <laughs> Shit. I thought I knew what I was doing. I got to go. <laughs> but anyway, the the point is we were listening to this and they generally had positive things to say about the killing joke. But there was also a general attitude of uh, it was of its time. There are parts of it that are extremely problematic. Most of it does not hold up. It probably should not be a part of continuity. Uh, there are things that are definitely wrong with it. It's not as, as good as everybody thinks. 
Which is, you know, hey, the world's full of opinions, and I believe we're living proof any asshole with a microphone gets to talk about them. Yeah. And again, I generally respect these guys' opinions. I wouldn't hate listening to the show. I like it. Yeah. My life is too fucking short to hate listen to anything. Exactly. Not to hate watch things. Amanda makes me hate watch things that she love watches. Well, some, some of them I hate watch, like Hell's Kitchen. Like You are not hate watching. Ten fucking years you've been watching Hell's Kitchen. You're not hate watching it. No, I, eh, maybe. I did give up on MasterChef. All right. and that's. I that. did also unfollow Gordon Ramsay. On what, social media? Yeah. Okay. Uh, not no particular reason. Didn't know you were following him. <laughs> you cheating up? What the fuck? <laughs> no, I just I went through and I cleaned out a bunch of accounts that I no longer really gave a shit about following. So, I'm, I'm sure he's crying into his like burger empire. Like, <laughs> I am a large, semi-muscular man. I can take it. No, I can't. <laughs> I can't. This is just <laughs> I'm on my show's over, folks. So I'm going upstairs and drinking heavy. Still following Nigella Lawson. Oh, for. <laughs> Anyway, anyway, it's understand. I don't know. It's it's weird to to hear people talk about it. the Killing Joke was a huge book when I was growing up. Yeah, and continues to be one of my favorite Batman stories. I have two first print copies of it. One of them I bought the day it came out. Wow. Well, I'm old. It's, <laughs> it's not a great fucking feat. I got to a comic store on that particular Wednesday. It's not that big a deal. <laughs> I was sucking breath in 1988. A lot of other people were too. I was there. I mean, not when you bought it, but I I was there in 1988. Yes, that is true. <laughs> the combination of, and this was not a a recent episode of of this particular show. It was a uh, one that was a few weeks old. But simultaneously, last week, even though we've said repeatedly during this show that Batgirl is <laughs> is no longer a book that is particularly directed to us. Yeah, we're not the target audience anymore. Yeah. Uh, it's still on your polls, I think, just because we never took it off. I'm really bad at saying to, and I shouldn't be, to the local comic book store owner, I, I'm not reading this anymore. I, I feel guilty dropping things from my polls, even if they no longer interest me. I, I got to be better on that. I think I need to be better about curating my polls. It's weird. It, it's the double-edged sword of going to a comic store that you've been going to for 15 years and having to look them in the face and go, I don't want to give you money for this. Yeah. It feels weird. I it, have been known to surreptitiously like take things from the, the stack of pulls he's given me and slip them back into the stacks. <laughs> just I sort, have done that. Just sort of a one-off. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. It's, it's the, the last time I was laid off from my day job, the only positive was I'm like, oh, thank God. Here's an excuse to drop a few books from my pulls. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only way I could do it. <laughs> Otherwise, it just grows and grows. But because of that... We continue to get Batgirl, and I read it every few issues to see if it's still a millennial tract. Yeah. No. And it is. Pseudo-cyberpunk, social media-based <laughs> <laughs> fake technology. Just, just all in caps, not for us. <laughs> yeah. But it's, I, I happened to read last week's, and it was Batgirl. She was in a coma. Uh, she was battling. They had some AI copy of her brain. Well, and that was from several issues back where they, she had tried to create some sort of computer AI based on her own brain and it went evil. And yes, because, we saw that when it was Tron. Because, <laughs> because Batgirl, you know, <laughs> supposed to be the book tied into the current zeitgeist. I plugged my head into my Apple laptop to make a copy. <laughs> Tony Stark already did it. <laughs> yeah. 
Sadly, it seemed less dumb when Tony Stark did it. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I backed up his brain. All right, well, it's Tony Stark. It's a, oh, I'm Batgirl. I'm a graduate student. I backed up my brain with my iMac. Really? Did you? Is that a thing that you did? Seems like something you'd be more likely to do on a, like a, a Linux box. Because <laughs> you got to compile the kernel. and. Uh... No, you you plug your brain into a Linux box. You're brain dead within an hour. Nobody's recovering shit. You got to recompile your own head. You're sitting there drooling. <laughs> And somebody's going, oh, I'm sorry. I I didn't know how this machine worked. That's the end of you. <laughs> Try to plug your head into... But the only way it would be less realistic is if she was doing it with the Chromebook. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> oh, well, no, but then they Microsoft could... Microsoft Surface. Then they could do things about the cloud. <laughs> She's in the cloud. <laughs> Where in the cloud? Just the cloud. She's in the fucking cloud. Yeah, and I read that when it was Adoro, so... Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I would believe it more if it was... <laughs> <laughs> At least Ubuntu sounds like something that could happen to your brain. <laughs> or or a stage of syphilis that has been previously undiscovered. That's <laughs> the Ubuntu stage. Oh, Christ. <laughs> he caught the Ubuntu and went full slackware. Jesus Christ, we'll never, <laughs> never recover him now. Clearly, we're not buying the street-level millennial realism of Batgirl. But anyway, the, yeah, there's this AI copy, you know, the copy of your brain, and the copy of the brain got malware, which the copies of your brain do. As they do, yes. They do. And the, <laughs> but they used it to attack Fugue, and it somehow merged with Batgirl, who's lying there drooling in the coma. <laughs> and between the two of them, they attack these fake memories, and the visual of fake memories being purged out, some of them are very clearly fake memories. Yes, Amanda, the death of her father. Yeah, the death of Jim Gordon, which was obviously a fake memory. Uh, something at uh, Batwoman, Kate Kane's wedding, wedding which yeah. never happened. But one of the big visuals over sort of on the sides is Joker with the Magnum saying, smile, which actually... And a, and a reference to her neighbor across the hall, Colleen, who was the one who found her after the Joker's attack. Right. Yeah, even though the visual that they use there it really is a combination of a the cover and the it's not something that actually happened in the book. Yeah, I got what they were laying down. Right. So that's like, and just reading it at the time, I'm like, oh, okay, they're sort of implying it's a fake memory. And I don't really read this book anyway. And with uh, DC Rebirth coming out, uh, this whole book and creative team maybe chucked anyway. Yeah. But it was. Then on social media later on in the week, Babs Tar, the artist on the book. Uh, posted a, a photo of Toby Maguire looking self-satisfied, saying, oh, we changed some things, which required the the writer then, Cameron Stewart, to, to chime in about whether or not they had just used this to say that the killing joke was a false memory. So I, I've got the whole quote. You want to just read yeah, it Yeah, you run with that. Because it was such... But I don't know, the perseverating is the word. Equivocating. Equivocating. I want it both ways. Yeah, yeah. Bullshit. <laughs> Like, please, <laughs> like you're caught with shit from both camps, like one thing you stole <laughs> in each hand, and bo everyone has their guns out. It's like, no, wait, I can explain everything to everyone. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, Cameron Stewart tweeted, uh, I'm often interested in ambiguity as a narrative device. One of the things we intended for this issue was for it to be read in several ways, depending on your own interpretation and preference. There is no right and no wrong way to read that page. It is what it is. To you. I can't head desk right now because the mic's in the way. <laughs> we deliberately set it up that way. If you want to read it as a retcon, you're welcome and encouraged to do so. If you want the timeline as is, you're also encouraged to do so. Your own personal truth in this, truth in quotes, truth in this story. 
is what we want you to take from it. How you read that page is how it is. Why don't you play yourself a golf clap because I can't get to the soundboard. (laughs) (laughs) Now put your hands together for the man who's falling apart before our eyes. I'm an alcoholic. Okay, that's my statement of purpose. (laughs) Rob, everybody, for your consideration. (laughs) My name is Hiro Nakamura. I'm from the future. And I have a message for you. You damn fool! You're more useless than Aquaman! <laughs> now that was, yeah, equivocating is right. You can't have it both ways, particularly when you go out of your way in your dramatic speech to say you are encouraged to read it as a retcon. Well, <laughs> yes, absolutely. But if you don't want to, it's okay, please. Don't give me a wedgie. Well, <laughs> it's a... It would be a noble statement of an artistic purpose if it didn't require us to believe that Cameron Stewart had never read a fucking mainstream American comic <laughs> book before. You know, ambiguity as a narrative device can be done and done well. See what Scott Snyder did with the Joker in the arc that led to the death of Bruce Wayne. <laughs> uh, yeah, Endgame. Endgame, thank you. Um, <laughs> there was so much ambiguity there. I wanted to reach through the book and choke Snyder out. Really? You're going to make the Joker an immortal? So I'll kill you. Calling but that it worked out. Calling that particular page spread um, narrative ambiguity is no. It's like you're trying really hard not to be flamed on social media for retconning the Killing Joke. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's <laughs> you. You can't. There is no implication. We're talking about, and Amanda, you and I have talked about this repeatedly since we've yeah. decided we were going to do this show. If there's something happening in the background that's not part of the direct story, you can say, okay, you can read that however you want. If somebody says something that's a little ambiguous, you can say, oh, okay, well, you can read that in one of two or three different ways. If you're saying that the killing joke is a false memory that was implanted into Barbara Niffer, Niffer, really? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Into Barbara Gordon. uh, The Westport Sniffer. (laughs) Let's all settle down. I fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly not the name of a girl I dated in high school. Anyway. uh, (laughs) Remind me to go look for that and bleep it out. Uh, if you're saying that it's a false memory implanted into Batgirl, that's a plot point. And plot is concrete. Plot is story. It's a thing that happens or doesn't happen. Yeah. You, you can't say, oh, maybe it happened or maybe it didn't. No, there's hundreds of fucking characters wandering around the DC universe who did things based on the fact that this happened to Barbara Gordon. I blame Mysterio. Sure, why not? You can do that. You can retcon it out of existence yeah. if you want. We've seen it a million times, and yeah, One More Day is a perfect example of it. That story sucked. <laughs> it was utterly awful. It Gee. required us to believe that Peter Parker and Mary Jane would do things that they would never fucking do. Sensing a theme here. Yeah, but, <laughs> but they committed to it. Yeah. You know, Joe Quesada... At the very least, Joe Quesada, because JMS uh, mm. wanted his name off of that. Right. I, I, I don't blame him. I don't blame him. <laughs> Although, curiously, he was all right with his name on Sin's Past. But now, all right, he wanted, it <laughs> he wanted it off one more day. But they committed. They said, yep, this is what happened. And they dealt with the ramifications throughout the Marvel Universe. All this stuff changed. Everybody who was supposed to know Peter Parker's name suddenly did it. They, they dealt with it as, yep, yep, it's a thing that's happened. You can't just say, oh, the, perhaps this is an implanted memory, because you're dealing at that point with, uh, okay, so does that mean there's no more Oracle? I, I don't even, I don't, 
before we get too much into the what does it mean if this is real or not, between reading this and and hearing this podcast with younger hosts who were not reading comics and arguably maybe not even alive mm. when Killing Joke actually dropped, it occurred to Amanda and I, it's like, well, you know, you hear this a lot and more and more of people saying and up to a certain point, absolutely understandably, yeah. you know, oh, Killing Joke, it's awful. All they did was fridge Batgirl. Mm-hmm. There was a pure fridging. It had no place it was never meant even alan moore's turned his back on the story they they fridged actually there's only two female characters in there and they're both fridged um barbara gordon and also um what is allegedly we're meant to believe is joker's wife but that's oh i hadn't even thought of that is that really something that has been bandied about yeah you've got to be shitting me because she, she, her only purpose in the story is to die, so as to create that much more pathos for the Joker, so that when he falls into the river of acid, because he doesn't even want to. After the only reason he's doing the heist to begin with is to get money, because he's such a shitty comedian to to support his wife and baby that's on the way. That's the only reason he's doing it. So he tries to back out. Once he finds out she dies, and then they strong arm him into it. So he's dealing with this unresolved grief and then falls into a river of acid. And when he comes out the other side, that's the straw. Okay. Uh, I can understand what you're saying. If anyone actually thinks that, I might fight them. Like with a pipe wrench. (laughs) Okay. Look, (laughs) number one. What happens in the flashback that the Joker has, we can't even be sure that ever even happened. Exactly. It's one of the really cool things about the killing joke. Everything there, it's like, wow, that's a cool, in-depth, emotional uh, origin for the Joker that even the Joker says, I remember it different ways every time. It could be complete bullshit. There could never have been a wife. The same way in the movie The Dark Knight, yep. there may never have been a father. There may never have been a wife. That yeah. It's just a story that goes through his head. Second, even if it's the God's honest truth, the wife dying in a stupid fashion is meant to have the Joker's life mimic, I think, a specific dark humor joke. Yeah. That actually Grant Morrison used in Arkham Asylum and put in the Joker's mouth. It says a guy's waiting in the waiting room while his wife is giving birth. And the uh, doctor comes out and says, everything's fine. Uh, you've got a beautiful baby boy. Uh, your wife came through this beautifully. And it could not possibly have gone better. And the husband says, really? Everything's fine? And the doctor says, nah, April Fool, your wife's dead and your kid's a spastic. Jesus. But uh, by having the wife die stupidly off camera yeah. in this way, right in the middle, I, he's, I guarantee you, he's just trying to say, yeah, I'm carving this around a dirty, not even dirty, a dark, dead baby, dead wife joke. Yeah, it's, it's supposed to underscore the point that pointless shit happens to people that causes them to go bad for no good reason. Yeah, it's just, it's a writing trick here to make the Joker's life a dark joke. Yeah. That's all it is. You can't fridge someone whose entire purpose in existing is to 
Bush, whose entire purpose in existing and whose entire existence is two fucking pages. Two pages in one goddamn comic book. You can't fringe. That's not even a character. She doesn't have a fucking name. Well, one would make the argument that why are you creating such one-dimensional female characters in your book? Just putting that. Because I had to put your mother in it, but she... Oh, never mind. That's... <laughs> wow. <laughs> I get you a funnel for that beer? Jesus, Jesus. Christ. Like, I, I can feel your blood pressure rising from this side of the table. This character is in panels I can count on two hands. She has no name, and she is there for a particular emotional purpose. That's not a fridging. It's not. Okay. <laughs> she, she's a female character who died to advance the story of a male character. That's that's the definition of a fridging. She, she was fridged. It's a, but... <laughs> Her death in no way motiv- motivated him to do what? To do what? To do what? To, I don't know. I mean, he wanted to drop out of the heist. He had to do it anyway. So her existence motivated him to do a thing. And then when she was no longer existing, he wanted to do a different thing, but then couldn't. So it was under a great deal of stress. So that's not a fridging. Her death did not motivate him to stand up to those criminals and become a vigilante himself. No, I, I believe the, the, the technical way it was described to me on the internet is... Causes further go. man pain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and the angst is what drives the, the character. It's because they have to have to motivate themselves to move on. But <sighs> he wasn't motivated to do anything. I, I don't know. Maybe he thought he'd get some, some money out of this and he could buy a different wife. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> buy a different wife. <laughs> it's not like more developed him really beyond having this purpose of trying to replicate this experiment because if it happened to him in theory should be able to happen to anybody so he does all of this crap to jim gordon (laughs) right and that that's the only reason to think that any of this ever even fucking happened at all yeah yeah that's it's a nameless character in maybe 10 panels (laughs) of two pages who may never have actually existed that's you can't fridge that you can't. I feel like you should be doing that to like an MC Hammer. Like you can't fridge that. <laughs> <laughs> Write that down. That's a possible title. <laughs> See, we've already gone way into can't this. That down. This could be a long episode. <laughs> we've gone way down this one rabbit hole that I didn't even think we were going to go down. It honestly never occurred to me that anybody might say the Joker's wife was fridged. That I will believe the argument, even though I don't agree with it. With Barbara Gordon. Well, she didn't really die, though. So she wasn't technically fridged. Oh, that's that's a splitting of hairs. I I won't go be. I, I won't go down that road. Okay, I'm just saying. <laughs> it's. A, I am willing to accept shot in the spine and taken out of action as a possible motivating factor uh, as fridging. Okay. Whether it actually was meant to have a motivating a factor, a motivating factor on Batman in this story, uh, we we may discuss that. Yeah. Well, he's clearly affected by it, but I don't know to what degree it motivated him more than how he was already motivated going into the story. Well, uh, look, whether I agree with it or not, when it comes to Batgirl, it's not even Batgirl. When it comes to Barbara Gordon, people who think she was fridged, they have a point. You know, she was absolutely shot to purely to get a reaction out of Commissioner Gordon. Yeah. Whether it was to get a reaction out of Batman, I think is questionable but absolutely that action happened with the joker intending to get a reaction out of commissioner gordon that was the entirety of his plan yeah 
Now, it's not an incidental thing where then Commissioner Gordon said, you pissed off the wrong man. It said, no, it was, I'm going to shoot her and watch you go crazy because of it. A goes to B. Right. Uh, I really don't think it was ever meant to get a reaction out of Batman, which I think could pull it out of the, the range of fridging. But, I mean, we can talk about that. Yeah, because he did it knowing that she was Jim Gordon's daughter, not knowing that she was Batgirl. Right. Oh, absolutely. Um, Whereas, you know, you look at something like, because we've been sort of bandying back and forth comparisons of this to uh, Batman Beyond Return of the Joker. He does what he does to Tim Drake, knowing full well Drake's relationship with Batman. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that that's a little bit different. Yeah. It's still an excellent story. Yes. But an excellent story that probably owes a hell of a lot to the healing joke. Oh, absolutely. But... That's that's not a thing where <laughs> it may come up a few times as we talk about yeah. killing joke. Um, yeah, another thing everyone bandies about, I think absolutely correctly, is the nature of the sexual violence mm -hmm. against Barbara Gordon. And there are a lot of people who were willing to argue, oh, no, it's not. No, it's absolutely sexual violence. If you violence. take somebody's pants off and take pictures of them without their permission... That sexual assault. Yeah. <laughs> I might have argued with you when I was 16. Yeah. I, I, I was 16. It's naked pictures taken by force is absolutely sexual assault. Yeah. Period. Even if he does nothing else, it's sexual assault. Yes. So now we're going to talk about why this book with two fridgings and a sexual assault is, <laughs> is worthy <laughs> to stand up and remain, um, even though it was not originally intended to be in canon and was eventually used as as something to um, give us the creation of of Oracle, even if it was not intentionally. Yeah, uh, it's uh, that was sort of the, and we've gone a long way. And I already started <laughs> digging into the book before we even got through our statement of purpose. That, that's, that's I, I mean, I, I just just putting it where we're we're talking about why this book that is is controversial because of its treatment of women and does not. Um, seem mindful of using them as anything other than props. <laughs> you can make that argument, yes. <laughs> okay. Yes, all right. So 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 let's talk about the history of this book. Yeah, it's you know, we we are here to kind of defend it and before we go too far, it's I th whether Alan Moore intended this to actually be in continuity or not. DC Comics absolutely okay. intended let's, this to let's be. Let's start there. Okay. So it's the important thing when you look at the killing joke, it's not just a thing that has always been here. That just one day there was killing joke and it always has been day with the world without end. Amen. Yep. It's, it came out in mid 1988. Mm -hmm. So it was two years after Crisis on Infinite Earths. And with Crisis on Infinite Earths, everyone's origin story was in play at that point. Yes. So this really really was the first opportunity to say, okay, what's the new origin of the Joker? Because we had new origins all over the place, and we had new origins all over the place from A-list creators. Right. You've got Frank Miller doing Batman Year One. You've got uh, John Byrne doing Man of Steel. Mm -hmm. uh, George Perez doing Wonder Woman. And now, yeah, okay, it's Alan Moore doing uh, the Joker. And yeah. it was a big deal. Before you even get into Alan Moore, I went back, I did some research, this book was one of the first real appearances of the Joker since Crisis. Okay. Yeah, uh, there's a, a website I found. I'll try to remember to put a link up, uh, a link up in the show notes, but JokerUniverse.com, 
where they try to list out all the appearances of the Joker throughout DC history. Mm-hmm. And yeah, if you consider Batman's post crisis continuity started right after year one, that'd be Batman 408. Yeah. Uh, we've got a quick flashback of the Joker in that issue, but it's a flashback. Uh, Joker had a couple of co- cameos in Dr. Fate and Swamp Thing, of all fucking things. <laughs> His first real post-crisis appearance wasn't even in a Batman book. It was in Superman 9. Okay. Joker appeared in Batman 415 and Millennium 2, but those were sort of cameos as part of the big Millennium event. So, yeah, this is among the first, if not really the first, long-form Joker story since Crisis on Infinite Earths. So, okay. number one, it's a big deal. Okay, this is the real reintroduction of the Joker into DC continuity, yep. which is something not a lot of people think about. I mean, also at the time, Batman was the one of the biggest comic books in the world where a couple of years after The Dark Knight Returns, by 1988, everybody knows that the Batman movie is in production. Yeah. So, the Batman mania of 1989 is beginning to crank up at this point no matter what. Yeah, and everybody knows Jack Nicholson's going to be the Joker, so there's just this huge amount of anticipation just yeah. around the character of the Joker. Mm-hmm. And then the other Alan Moore on the Joker. And Alan Moore at the time, Watchmen had really just come out. Watchmen ended in October 1987. Yeah, he was writing this around the same time. Yeah. But it's, I mean, Watchmen became, particularly with that first trade paperback reboot, I mean, it started to become Watchmen mm-hmm. that everybody thinks about. Killing Joke was his first post-Watchmen comic book. <laughs> so if you were reading comic books in 1988, it, you really it's hard, if not impossible, to convey how big a deal this one book was. It was right in the middle of a cross-section of Batman and Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen and Alan Moore and general Batman excitement. It was just, it was this thing where it's like, oh, Jesus Christ, I can't believe, I can't wait to get my hands on this. It was a big goddamn deal. And as Alan Moore's first book after, Alan Moore could have sat on a Xerox machine and hit print 48 <laughs> times and called it the killing scrote. And oh. he just sold 4 million fucking oh. copies of it. It would, <laughs> too much? Oh, I was going to say taint, but... That guy was a jackass! Uh, I shouldn't have said that. Yeah, but he did. He I did. did. And I feel shame. Nah, I don't, don't feel any fucking shame. So, I mean, yeah, you've got more writing. Batman, the guy who wrote Watchmen, who wrote Rorschach as a comment on Batman, now he's writing Batman! Yeah. And it's it, Today, it's possible to read The Killing Joke and say, oh, okay, it's kind of dated. It's a product of the 80s. Everybody's probably doing a lot of cocaine. They made a lot of terrible decisions about female characters. But in mid-1988, this was the most important comic book in the world. It went through 14 printings. Yeah. I mean, this is not just sort of, you know, this is not like Alan Moore now. He says, you know, oh, okay, I created Mogo and I wrote one panel and that's where Blackest Night came from. No, this was the most important thing in the world. Everybody read it. It meant everything. And that's part of the context you need to understand, not just in where where the book has its reputation, but why DC would have taken this thing, even if Alan Moore really didn't intend it to be in continuity, but why DC would say, we're going to take this and we're going to do whatever the fuck we have to do to make this continuity. It's a nail in the coffin of what remained of the Silver Age, given that with this book, you're beginning to, I mean, Miller had already sort of done it to a certain degree, to explore the idea of, you know, in this this world that these characters live in, it's dark. 
there's nihilism. <laughs> oh, totally. And part of where, where Moore distances himself from it now was he, he wrote it, he said, too close to um, when he was writing Watchmen. So he doesn't see what the big deal there is about it. It's about nothing in his mind, whereas all of his other books followed some themes. And I would argue, no, there, there's a theme here. <laughs> you know, um, you know what, what does it mean to bring nihilism to, to the superhero world? Uh, he's exploring similar themes with the Joker that he did uh, with Comedian. And I think, yeah, he doesn't see that maybe because he wrote them so closely together. There are definitely, uh, I think, parallels, if not direct, you know, oh, yes, clearly this came from this. And But I think there are definitely parallels between the Comedian and Watchmen and Joker. He takes it to a further extreme, certainly, with Joker. Yeah, Comedian is the Joker trying to work within some ephemeral framework of law and order and justice. Yeah. There's a similar, if not completely insane, at least maybe irrational, yeah, nihilism. The world's a joke. It doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter if I kill or not. It doesn't matter if I rape or not. It doesn't matter what I do. Ultimately, we're all going to wind up dead, right. and we're all just sort of pittering around, you know, trying to, you know, make some kind of world when we're all going to probably die in nuclear fire, no matter what the hell we do. But he still tries to operate within this realm of, but there is still at least the concept of justice. So you can reach a point with a comedian, like when he found Adrian's plan, yeah, where he said, "This is too much even for me. I right. can't possibly." The Joker is what happens when that line never shows up it's <laughs> yeah. just no this is it it's this is all there is and nothing matters this is it, it you, is impossible to go too far you you can think you're a good person all you want but all it takes is one bad day and <laughs> and then you go down the the rabbit hole of madness um and that's what he tries to prove in this book yeah and that's as close to a line as i think at least this iteration of the joker has right now his line is nothing matters because I know this is the truth because it happened to me. Yeah. And I know it's the truth and I know it would happen to you and therefore nothing matters. When it doesn't happen to Commissioner Gordon, that's as close as the Joker, this Joker, yeah. ever gets to, all right, well, maybe there's something different I should be doing. Maybe I should accept help from the Batman. Maybe I'm not correct. But even then, he can't. It's not really a line. He can't face that. Right. It's no. Okay. It's it doesn't matter because whether it's true for everyone or not, it's true for me. Yeah. So his, his perception is his reality. So there's definitely comparisons between the comedian and the Joker, and I can see why Moore would say, you know, oh, I was too close to this, and because of that, uh, the Killing Joke isn't really about anything except Batman and mm -hmm. the Joker. But I, I think you've got a point of. But no, it, it brings a real darkness to the DC universe that, yeah, started with The Dark Knight Returns. And yeah, it's one of those same podcast hosts <laughs> who um, you know, completely disagree with about The Killing Joke has a theory that, yeah, the, the Dark Knight Returns is really Adam West becoming the modern Batman. Yeah. Which I'm not sure I totally agree with either, but I can kind of see, all right, I can see where you're you're getting that, at least with some of the imagery and where you know, certain things start up and move to in that book. I think that's an argument for a different day. Yeah. <laughs> but so, yeah, I can easily see this as being more seeing, okay, this is a way we can go along the same lines. Or whether he intended that or not, right. I, I think it's it's something that definitely happened here. 
Um, reading the the various forwards and afterwards because we have the deluxe edition. Yeah, can I tell you one thing that bothers me about the deluxe edition? Sure. It's a the only I went out and when we decided we we're going to do this show, I went out and bought it because yeah, we've got a couple of copies in the house. They're worth about one hundred and twenty five <laughs> a piece. Uh, they can stay in the poly bag for right now. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, Balin's coloring job is fine, but he took away the yellow oval around the bat. Oh, yeah. And I think he did that to try to make it look more modern because, yeah, in the last 15 years or so, that's gone away. And that was something specific that Alan Moore wanted there. It was part of the character in the late 1980s. And I, if you Google online Killing mm. Joke script, it's available. You can read Alan Moore's original script. He has specific notes about the yellow oval. Uh, plus, the little bat that goes in the yellow oval looks yeah. wicked fucking stupid without the yellow oval. It looks like a little Tommy Hilfiger bat. Yeah, I mean the interesting thing is Bolland did all redid all the coloring because he didn't like how the coloring came out the, in the first um, published edition. Uh, which, which is fine. The coloring job I think is fine. Yeah, I, I never had a problem with the coloring job in the original one, but it was 1980s coloring. Yeah. So yeah, if certain things. If there's anything in a comic book you're going to remaster after 15 years, it's going to be the coloring. I don't have a problem with it, the coloring being redone. Yeah. No, he didn't, he didn't like how bright in the 80s it was. He wanted it to, to be more subtle and, and moody. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, uh, the new coloring looks great. The yellow oval should have been there because <laughs> it looks stupid. Uh, he left the yellow blouse on Barbara. Well, all right. Let's talk about Brian Ballin for a minute, but, uh, another minute. Cause historically, that was another reason this was a book to be excited about. Mm -hmm. You know, at the time, he was known, at least in the United States, for doing DC covers. The right. first time I think he caught my attention was when he was doing Animal Man covers for the mm -hmm. Grant Morrison series. But he, he really wasn't doing interiors. Uh, he apparently did the interiors for Camelot 3000 yep. in the early 80s. But I was never a, a fantasy. Uh, Sword and Sorcery has never been my thing, so I never picked that book up. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, unless... So, so he had a pretty good reputation as a cover artist and always had a very unique look. But if you were an American... Unless you were hunting down, you know, old 2000 AD books or the Eagle reprints of Judge Dredd stories, this was the first chance a lot of us really had to see, and probably since then, right, to see Brian Ballin do interiors on a book. So it was, yeah, just between, oh, Jesus, Alan Moore right after Watchmen, and yeah, and this artist we've only ever seen do covers. You got him to do interiors? How do you do? Does he have pictures of him blowing a horse? <laughs> so, <laughs> Jesus. I'm sorry. My brain is broken. Where does your brain go to? It's been a, it's been a long week, man. <laughs> so it was just another thing to be excited about that I, I don't want to discount. You know, everybody says, and rightly so, Alan Moore was the big draw to this, but... Ballin's art was was another one. And it's spectacular. Absolutely. Spectacular it's a great art. looking book. But Ballin said that this book was actually his idea because he wanted to do a Joker story, so he approached more. Um there are other accounts where they it's it's the other way around. I guess Ballin approached more. Yeah, I've heard it both ways. That's more, what he says in here. Yeah, and no, I've I've heard uh, that Moore approached Ballin to do a project that punted, so Moore said, Well, is there something else you want to do? And he said the Joker and either way, uh, it's I think it's established that doing a Joker story was Ballin's idea. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not only was there just all this excitement about it. I mean, did you read it at the time? When it first came out? Yeah, because no. in 1988, I was heavily into comic books. And at that point, I had my driver's license so I could go to comic stores. And I lived closer to a big city than you did. 
a couple of them so I could go and get comic books. Now, I first read this, I believe, in 2001 or 2002. Okay. And my reaction to it was um, I was irritated that there was a Joker origin because I feel that that's something that should not be. I I think that the whole um, ephemeral nature of, of the Joker is more appealing to me. <laughs> I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, However, I think that's why this is a really good book. Yeah, but go on. But it didn't. It didn't ruin the story for me. I was more irritated, like ah, don't don't give him an origin. Um, and I remember being sort of punched in the gut by by the death of Barbara because at that point, um, Oracle was a thing. <laughs> oh yeah. But I wasn't I wasn't upset so much as shaken because it really does make the stakes real and it, and, 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 and in my opinion a necessary way. When you are playing with characters this powerful, no one should be safe. Right. It's it's like The Walking Dead. Any at any time, somebody could die, except Daryl. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> it, it and and you should not be too attached to um, any one character. Now, interestingly, um, some of Marvel in particular has gotten far more cavalier about major character deaths. <laughs> well, that's, um, it's in, because in, they don't fucking matter anymore. Exactly. But at the time, you know, it's a big deal. And, but it should be that way. You, you should feel that the stakes are high enough that it's a high wire balancing act. And at any time it could go wrong because otherwise there are no stakes. I agree with you completely. Certain pieces of this book, I think, are crucial. Other ones, I think, could be easily replaced and keep the same impact. Yeah. If they had done this story and it had been James Gordon Jr. Mm. and instead of sexual violence, they planted him in a chair on camera and worked him over with a pipe wrench in front of his father and shot him in the face. It would kind of explain more why James Gordon Jr. is the way he is. It, it would, <laughs> it would, but I don't think it changes the story at all. Yeah, I think it keeps the guts of it. I think part of the problem is, and we'll talk more about the the vagaries of Barbara Gordon in 1988. But James Gordon Jr. had really just been introduced as an infant in Batman Year One. Right, he was a tabula rasa, brand new character for an a sudden ex wife. That lived somewhere else. And the last we saw of him was being handed over from Bruce Wayne to Jim Gordon. And that was it. There was no character to hang on that. Yeah. So, and depending on, yeah, when this was, when the killing joke was written, if he was right, if Moore was writing it at the same time that he was writing Watchmen. Yeah. We're talking late 86 mm -hmm. through 87. So he may not have seen year one and had any idea that suddenly oh there's this son because they never really did anything with jim gordon jr as far as i remember yeah until yeah like scott snyder dug him up for detective comics before yeah. flashpoint so it's you could have done it but this character simply wasn't uh, available yeah uh, there are i think certain decisions that were made because well these are the characters that are available whether the further decision to say since that character is available uh, let's turn it into a sexual assault. Uh, all right, that's a questionable decision, maybe, but that's a little. But it's a decision that Moore has made for other books. Um, oh, Moore's. 
Now, well, and, and I've said it before on the show. You know. I, I almost went. With, I almost did a big libel there. Uh, <laughs> Moore uh, is enthusiastic about the use of rape as a plot uh, device. Yeah, and I've said before in the show that to demonstrate that somebody is a horrible human being, using rape is fucking lazy. So, oh, it absolutely is. It's totally lazy. And Moore has done it over and over yeah. again. What about character or plot? Did it show us when Mr. Hyde raped the Invisible Man in <laughs> League of Extraordinary Gentlemen 2? What, what did we learn from that, Al? Did we learn that, that they went to an English did, public school? Did we learn? <laughs> it buggered me senseless, taught me a thing or two about life. <laughs> uh, yes, it's true. This man has no dick. No, he did. It was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but what what did it teach us about character? That that Mr. Hyde is a monster. We knew that from the original source material. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of the point of the original source material. Exactly. I mean, it, would it have been any different to just beat the Invisible Man to death? No. It, but I just threw my hands up there, but nobody at home would see that. So folks at home, I just threw up my hands there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Uh, yeah, in Watchmen with the comedian and Silk Spectre one, mm-hmm. and yeah, he he has used this repeatedly. Yeah, in this particular case, in the Killing Joke, I'll I'll cop to it. It's not necessary. It feels like a decision that was made because if, as um Bob Har- was it Bob Harris supposedly? Uh, no, Len Wein. Len Wein, no, or it, Len Wine. In. The, the the editor who said cripple the bitch. I think that was uh, Len Wein. Okay. He went to Dick Giordano to ask permission. Got it. Uh, it sounds like... The the story there, by the way, is Alan Moore has said he called Len, Len Wein, Len Wein. Uh, he, <laughs> Dude. He, he, yeah, whatever. What kind of parents would name their kid that? He called Len. Lenny. I, Len. <laughs> Len <laughs> he called him and asked if it would be okay for him to... Do the plot device of uh, paralyzing Barbara. And he said, oh, let me go ask Dick Giordano. And he put the phone down and came back two or three minutes later and said, it's all good. Cripple the bitch. That's the story that Alan Moore says. Which makes me wonder. Neither Dick Giordano nor Len have Len Wein, Len Wein. Jesus, I got <laughs> to get the pronunciation of Wikipedia. parents would name their kid that. <laughs> have confirmed this story. But, you know, and, and Alan Moore is... Not only the hero of his own story, but he's the hero of every story about himself that he tells. But that's his story. Right. So where I was going with that is... I apologize, <laughs> but just because you and I have read this story doesn't mean that anybody listening has. Um, makes me wonder, and you had said it, you know, if you could ask Alan Moore one question, it would be, did, did you even think about asking if you could kill her? Oh, absolutely. Because one of the biggest flaws with Joker's experiment here is that he doesn't kill Barbara. Which makes me wonder if death was off the table, even though she was not a particularly active character at this point, because they might have plans for her in the future. If so, what's the next worst thing they could do other than kill her? Yeah, I would absolutely love to ask Alan Moore that question, because the Joker's plan, as it is executed here, is flawed. Not just from his own uh, rules around it, but from a story point. Yeah. If we're even remotely to believe that Joker's flashbacks in The Killing Joke constitute his actual origin, which, again, I think is one of the genius things about this. When he says, I remember it different ways every time, right? it automatically gives readers and more and everybody else the out of, this may not be the way it happened. Yep, here's a concrete origin story for you that you are more than welcome to completely discard. Yeah. And that 
registered with me the first time I read it. And I'm like, this is really important and a really smart way to go. Yeah. But in any event, if we're to believe even remotely that that is his origin from a storytelling standpoint, if I'm Alan Moore saying I'm trying to come up with the Joker, trying to recreate the circumstances of his own creation that will, because I have just invented this creation, mirror Batman's in that part of my motivation for the rest of my life is a loved one of mine died stupidly for no fucking reason at all. And mm -hmm. I was unable to do anything about it. It makes far more sense to kill Barbara in front of Commissioner Gordon yeah. than it does to assault her, be it just with naked pictures or <coughs> the the rape that many people infer. That yes. I don't think there's any concrete well, evidence of. It doesn't make it any better yeah. if it's just naked pictures. But it makes far more sense to shoot her in the face in front of Commissioner Gordon. Yeah. So I'd love to ask Alan Moore, if I could give him a truth serum, it's like, did you <laughs> ask if you could kill her first? Because that makes a shittier story than, oh, and then he said, cripple the bitch. And I hung up and I washed my hands and said, such disgusting Americans. <laughs> <laughs> and then I toiled with my quill and wrote. <laughs> I don't fucking know. <laughs> okay. I think somebody needs a little nap. Uh. Very, very likely, or at least another beer. Um, that that being as it may, yeah, I I like this story. I like that it's willing to go that dark. But as as um, Batgirl in its current form is no longer a book for me, I can see where this book is not for everybody because everybody comes to things with their their own tastes. <laughs> well, I mean, before we get into yeah, again, I really want to address the sort of null set ephemera just how barbara gordon was just sort of not doing anything yeah and i want to address that in a second but okay. but yeah the, the other thing to remember about this is part of why it became a classic is it's a really fucking good joker story and sort of a sort of the pivot point where the joker really became what we understand him to be ever since Ever, ever since it, this came out. Yeah. You know, the Joker in the early golden, in the golden age, he was a murderer. Mm -hmm. But the Joker thing was a, it was a gag. It was a gimmick. We didn't really get any kind of origin you know, until the 50s somewhere where somebody came up with this Red Hood thing. Right. Which, you know, even then it's, uh, okay, so he was always a master criminal, but he was always a master criminal. You know, it was the Dark Knight Returns a couple years earlier you know, really sort of push the Joker into the full on just homicidal, not just homicidal, but completely in orbit around Batman and absolutely exist because of Batman. Yeah. Really started to push that toward front and center. Cause you've got the Joker killing an amusement park full of fucking kids. People complain about, Oh, he shot Barbara for no reason. We've got a whole fucking roller coaster full of dead kids. Yeah. Nobody cares about the dead kids. Did they fridge the kids? Did they fridge the fucking kids? Arguably, I guess. I didn't know. Who... Where's Wallace String? Jesus. I mean, that's the other thing too. When we, we when we start talking about violence from one character to another character, um, they're bad guys. It's what they do. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And whether or not the the female character is given her due or is is well developed, that's a separate issue. I feel as though sometimes you have to look at what was the 
the writer attempting to do overall with the story rather than focusing on, gee, I wish that there was representation in here for me. Yes. Not that representation isn't important, but it's a separate issue, I think, in this case. Oh, it's it's absolutely representation. Particularly in historical context. Yeah. Representation is important. It can't be the most important thing or stories will have to be hobbled in order to fit that in. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about this. You know, in Macbeth, Lady Macduff is fridged. It's not going to make me stop reading Shakespeare. <laughs> Desdemona in Othello, fridged. Amelia, fridged. Still going to read Othello. <laughs> Romeo, fridged. <laughs> yeah, actually. <laughs> Sometimes characters die for no reason at all. Yeah. But this isn't even a case of representation versus versus story. This is... Fridging is a different issue than representation, I think. Uh, it's, it, there's a spectrum because it gets into, for, for, for those of us that want to see more characters that reflect who we are, when, the, when a character shows up that we identify with, you know, in my case, oh, I had a white female, <laughs> um, and they're only there to be a prop in the background and then killed, it's like, all right, well, how does that make me feel? Oh, I, I, how do I feel about the rest of the book for me? You know, how well written is it? Otherwise, I'm going to go out and look for books that have more that I identify with. But again, for me, it comes down to how do I how do I feel about the the story overall? I I enjoyed this particular story. Well, yeah, and to, and to get back to my original point, it, this was really the first time we've not utterly the first time, but it it, it represented a turning point because mm-hmm. yeah, the idea of Joker as just a random murderer and who is absolutely motivated by the reaction that he gets from Batman was put hugely front and center in the Dark Knight Returns where, yeah, he killed an entire studio audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, he killed an entire uh, amusement park uh, to the point where the way Miller wrote the Joker, he literally couldn't and didn't exist without Batman. He was catatonic and completely unresponsive for years in Arkham Asylum yep. until he heard on television that Batman had returned. Right. And then he woke up and everything he did was to get released and to do things to draw Batman to him. He calls Batman darling. Yeah. You know, there's almost a homosexual relationship, there, at least in Joker's mind, between the two of them. Yeah. And and that's they're, they're symbiotic and almost parasitic to each other. Uh, yeah. And utterly... That Joker is utterly homicidal. He's not the clown prince of crime. He's there to kill people. Right. That's it. He'll sell bombs to Harvey Dent, deliberately making them so they'll malfunction and explode if Batman doesn't find it. He doesn't care. He's just homicidal. If it'll get Batman's attention, he'll kill it. So that was really the first modern, really modern interpretation because it... Again, going back to the Silver Age and Golden Age, he was the clown prince of crime. He was kind of a goofball. Yeah. You now Batman 66 is kind of a goofball. You know, it's, we started historically, it's widely accepted that, uh, I think it was written by Denny O'Neill, the Joker's five way revenge, I think in Batman 251 mm. was the first modern Joker story where he was shown as not using it as a gag, legitimately insane, 
legitimately dangerous as unpredictable as opposed to the goofball on the the Batman 66 show. Yeah. Uh, Then you had the Joker fish in uh, Marshall Rogers and, oh, why am I drawing? Steve Englehart's Mm. uh, Detective Comics. It's like 470-something. There were a couple issues where he he poisoned the fish and he's crazy enough. He's like, well, now you have to copy. I I want to copyright on the fish, so I get a piece of every fish sale. (laughs) But the first, he's legitimately and insane and dangerous to the point of, you know, even in those stories, the Joker's got a big scheme. Right. You know, it's like your Batman 89 movie. It's I'm going to have, <laughs> I'm going to have balloons full of Smilex on the street. <laughs> I'm going to put it in the water supply. I'm gonna <laughs> yeah. Whereas in the killing joke, the Joker is killing people one-on-one. He's looking them in the face and giving them a spiked joy buzzer full of Joker venom and watching them while they die. Mm-hmm. He's just, uh, no, there's no great kidnapping and giant typewriters or big sundials or, uh, no, I'm, when you open the door, I'm going to shoot you in the spine with a fucking forty-four Magnum. Right. And then giggle while I take pictures of you. That kind of just general personal homicidal for weird motivations that only make sense to Joker, this is where it really crystallized. Yeah, but they also front load on Batman's end when when he goes to the the asylum looking to have a conversation with Joker before he discovers he's escaped, that they are entwined. You know, this is going to get to a point where one of us kills the other. And, and that sort of sets the tone for why it's important to Batman to bring Joker to heel because what line is he willing to cross? Well, and that's why people argue at the end. There's two moments of ambiguity in the book. It's, you know, did Joker do more than just take picture pictures and did Batman kill Joker at the end? Batman didn't kill Joker at the end. I, I agree with you, but I think that's part of the other thing that, that causes some people to look at this book askance because Batman wouldn't kill. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, but no, the, I think the theory of Batman killing the Joker it really got pushed by Grant Morrison when he did yet another podcast uh, saying, oh, here's my theory. And, oh, look, in this particular panel, he's reaching over to the Joker. Uh, yeah, he's laughing and putting his arm on his shoulder. His hands aren't anywhere near his throat. He absolutely did not kill the Joker. And again, I've read the original script. It's available online. There's absolutely no mention in it. And that thing, it more flat out says, draw it as if he's leaning over to put his arm on his shoulder. They're supporting themselves so they don't fall down laughing. And that speaks to, again, their their symbiotic nature. (laughs) They're having this moment at the end. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The other moment of ambiguity, I would argue, doesn't matter a bit. I don't think it matters for purposes of story whether the Joker raped Barbara or took horrible pictures of her. I think it matters. It's still a sexual assault. Is it going to make it more reprehensible? Is there a level of, oh, this is horrible, but it's not so horrible I can't read it. It's either horrible or it's not. I I think it matters to those that that look for reasons to get further upset about the book. I think it matters more for people who are looking for reasons to not get upset about it. Again, I think you could tell this entire story with Jim Gordon's male son Mm -hmm. being beaten with a wrench and shot in the head. Yeah. And it doesn't change the story at all. I do think the sexually violent nature probably doesn't need to be here. No. It probably doesn't. It doesn't add anything to the story, except as a 1988 reader who didn't see this kind of thing in comics very often, maybe the first time they'd seen it was in 
Watchmen. Right. Now, if you've grown up reading American superhero comics, you certainly didn't see this kind of thing in a Batman comic. No, but you you would have seen it even if you were just watching Miami Vice at oh, the time. Absolutely. I certainly didn't drop the book and go, oh, my heavens. And the vapors. I have the vapors from what the Joker did. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It, but you didn't see it in this kind of comic book. Right. That said, is it cheap jack shorthand? Of it? Oh, I'll fucking stick it in them now. I'll show them that Joker's serious. Yeah, kind of is. Yeah. It doesn't need to be there. Does it invalidate the entire story? I'll argue absolutely fucking not. Yeah. And, I, and it's not something that I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to apologize for it. I'll just say that it's a product of the time in which it was written. And and you can like or dislike based on what you bring to it as you read read it. Yeah, it's it's not enough to make me turn my back on the story. Yeah. But I'll acknowledge, doesn't have to be there at all. Okay. So. But the other thing that, that I want to bring up, you brought up that, and you're absolutely right, this story opened with the concept of Batman and Joker. Uh, it's, it's about, you know, us. We're going to kill each other. We're absolutely orbiting each other. And I, it's very strange, and you can tell me if you disagree with this, Clearly, that was meant to be a point that Moore had, but I really kind of felt like Joker was doing what he did with Gordon and with Barbara, at least as much, if not more, to prove to himself that his theory that everybody is one bad day away from going berserk mm-hmm. and utterly insane, I I really felt he was at least as much, if not more, trying to prove that to himself than he was to prove it to Batman. Yeah, I, I think he, he was trying to, to come to an understanding about, about this as a, a truth. And either the experiment was going to replicate the results or he hadn't even thought far ahead to what would happen if it didn't. <laughs> yeah, it's, he, he all but gave up. But there's the that nihilism piece. You know, if it led to things going poorly for him and he dies this is suicide by batman i think he's just as happy to <laughs> oh i think he knows that batman will never kill him yeah but he's he's trying to see how far can i push batman <laughs> and see again i think i think joker is motivated by batman and obviously in the greater scheme of things of 70 something years of history of batman and the joker Obviously, the idea that they're the opposite number of each other and the arch nemesis and one tries to stop and the other tries to push the other, I think that's hugely important. Mm -hmm. In this one, I I just really got the sense, Joker, I'm doing this for me. And yes, I'm going to show Batman at the end of it because I am tied to Batman and I do want to show him what's going on. But yeah, it's Joker does all this and gets his reaction and then seems to leave the ticket for Batman to see, look, come see what I did. I'm right. And the reaction that Joker has when Batman says, Gordon's fine. He was able to deal with this. Maybe it's just you. He get, becomes hugely violent. And his first, re- he, he says, no, that like f- throwing a tantrum, like a, it's bedtime. No. <laughs> and then when he finally realizes he can't defeat Batman physically, he's just, Everything immediately then goes back to exactly what it was. You know, he says, fine, beat me up. I terrorized an old man and shot a defenseless girl. Yeah. He knows now, okay, this is all I did. 
but it was so grandiose in his head. I'm going to show everybody. And there's, yeah, that moment of understanding of, I, I did this for nothing. It doesn't matter. It just, it, the sense I had through the whole book was Joker's doing this for himself and he'll bring Batman in at the end. And when he realizes, oh, Jesus, maybe it is just me, he just gives up. Well, he shifts from uh, he's doing it for himself to then it's, you know, see see Batman, it's all a joke. And when Batman says, yeah, I, I know, and I didn't think it was funny the first time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, then, then it escalates into violence because at that point, you know, fuck, what do I have to live for? <laughs> And then, yeah. then when he can't get, then when he can't suicide via Batman, it's it's resignation. <laughs> I don't think suicide by Batman was in any way a motivation. I think he brought Batman there to witness it. Well, I think he he was in the same camp as Batman, believing that one or the other of them will kill each other, and he was kind of figuring, fine, let's bring it to a head. And then when Batman doesn't kill him, <laughs> you've got a point. Yeah, I'm just I'm putting stuff together in my head of of Gordon saying do it by the book. Yeah, uh, and then Batman saying, "Okay, absolutely, I'm not even going to beat you senseless. I've got you." Yeah. So yeah, it's possible that was a, a motivation. Although, because <laughs> he was willing to kill Batman until he realized that his gun was empty. The one hole in that Joker has no idea Batman made that speech. Joker was not in Arkham Asylum when he made that speech. He was already out trying to buy a fucking amusement park. Yeah. Well. We know it as the reader, but yeah, it's a. I get it, and I, I think you you may well have a point. That may well have been what Moore intended, right? So, what was going on with Barbara Gordon at this time, prior to the Killing Joke? Well, and that's the that's the thing. The biggest complaint I've seen it over and over again uh, in in arguments about Batgirl being fridged. They fridged Batgirl in the Killing Joke. You know, and there's this common conception that, oh, he took out Batgirl in the prime of her career. The thing they have to remember historically is in 1988 DC Comics, there was no Batgirl. Yeah. After Crisis on Infinite Earths, uh, Barbara appeared as Batgirl twice, at least that I've been able to find. She was in a Secret Origins, Secret mm -hmm. Origins 20, that was November 1987. So, and the, and the, the way Secret Origins was hooked together was, at least this particular story, from what I've been able to see, I've not read it, is, it, oh, it's Batgirl, uh, and she does this thing, and it leads to a flashback as to how her origin started. So you've got maybe two or three pages of Batgirl in continuity after Crisis on Infinite Earths. Okay. Purely as a way to show her origin story. And then we had Batgirl Special 1, that was May 1988, where she fucking retires as Batgirl. It's the last Batgirl story. Now, I'll grant you, I'll guarantee you that this was put together and commissioned and set up by DC in order to wrap up the character for the purposes of making her available to get her fucking spine blown out in The Killing Joke. But still, Barbara Gordon wasn't Batgirl yeah. in The Killing Joke. So, I mean, you can make the argument that Batgirl would have eventually appeared. You know, at some point in post-crisis, she'd have popped up. But if you think back to 1988, that was probably not a thing that was really going to happen. You know, as much as there's an, a modern appreciation of Batman 66, mm -hmm. you know, with Adam West and, you know, oh, it was what it was. And it was a way for a lot of people to get into comic books who weren't. And sure, it was campy, but it was, you know, for what it is, it's you know pretty, not, not too bad. Yeah, nobody fucking thought that in 1988. 
you know, in 1988, we didn't have, there were no Marvel movies. Yeah, there was no such thing as geek chic. In 1984, we had Revenge of the Nerds, where people who like comic books were beaten unconscious by a gentleman named Meat. <laughs> That's what it was like to read comic books back then. So, I mean, if you were reading comic books in 1988, you were part of a group of people who understood that comics were growing up along with us. Right. I mean, I was prime time. I was 16, 17 years old, 1988, as, you know, I'm going from... The you know, old Avengers comics, and then there's Dark Knight, and then there's Watchmen. It's like, Jesus, I don't have to stop reading these. Why would anybody, if you even remotely like these characters and this kind of fiction? But if you weren't reading them, you know, yeah, there were the Rolling Stone article about, you know, Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen and how comics are growing up. But even that is wrapped up in the imagery of fucking 1966. You know, Biff, pow, comics aren't for kids anymore, bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone who read comics hated that shit. We were trying to get away from that. Comic fans were desperate to get out from under the fucking shadow of that show. Yeah. And Barbara Gordon was created in 1967 specifically as a pitch to the producers of the TV show to put her on the TV show. Yeah, because they needed a, a female interest on the show. Barbara Gordon and Batgirl did not exist until... The TV show and only existed because of Batman 66. So, yeah, now you've got Crisis and the Dark Knight Return come, Dark Knight Returns comes out and everybody's saying they want a more realistic adult Batman. And the popular opinion, whether you agree with it now or not, the popular opinion in the 1980s was if there was a real Batman, he would be a loner. He would not bring out a kid in a fucking, a literal red shirt. <laughs> You know, to, to take bullets for him. You know, he wouldn't trust anybody. And I, I understand, I agree with modern writers, you know, like Scott Snyder. You know, they've made the case Batman needs to have a family, a surrogate family to replace what he has and to show himself what he's fighting for and to take some of the ultra-violent edge that you would get as, say, an all-star Batman and Robin yeah. Batman. I get that. I believe in it. You know, it's, I have learned, okay, yep, as I've gotten older, yeah, this is the kind of Batman, and I understand why he would have the Batman family. In 1988, where if you walk down the halls of your high school with a fucking Batman comic, you get him slapped out of your fucking arms, you know. <laughs> the, no, it's a, uh, no, we need to have him be realistic and show everybody that there's something really to this character. So, yeah, in the late 80s, DC put it up to a vote. We fucking killed Robin. Yeah. It's the greatest day of my life. <laughs> Killing Robin on a 900 number is my generation's Woodstock. <laughs> I've had to restrain you at DC panels from getting up to the mic and asking Dan DiDio for your money back. Oh, my God. When I fucking read Hush and Jason Todd was there, even <laughs> though it turned out to be Clayface, I'm like, you motherfuckers. I threw the fucking book across the room. <laughs> they fucking did it. They swore to me they wouldn't do it. You bastards. Chasing DiDio around like the the newspaper delivery kid on the bike and uh was it say anything no not say anything yeah uh better off dead. better off dead yeah. two dollars two dollars <laughs> and uh, i i love judd winnick <laughs> i'd give him almost anything to give me more barry ween comics i every time i've seen him at a convention i have to constantly grind my teeth and i say you fucking did this you did it winnick where's the ween <laughs> <laughs> uh funny story that uh, <laughs> So the the point being, 
nobody, Christ, we didn't want Robin. We sure as shit didn't want Batgirl. At the time, again, it's it's there's a historical context to consider with this. Well, yeah, it's a, there's a reason there's no Robin in the first Batman movie. Yeah, there's a reason there's no Robin until the shittiest of the Batman movies. To, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's and if you think about it, yeah, we killed Robin in '89, and they gave us Tim Drake in 1990, mm-hmm. but nobody tried to give us another Batgirl until Cassandra Kane in like 1998, 99. That sounds right. Yeah, so. And for me, that's that's sort of my Batgirl. That's that's my Batgirl. <laughs> yeah, I understand completely. Oh, we'll get to that. <laughs> but yeah, given that kind of readership and that kind of fandom for Batman at the time, Batgirl was not coming back. Yeah. She, just, she wasn't coming back anytime soon. It wasn't going to happen. So yeah, you've got this character who's tied to Jim Gordon who's tied to Jim Gordon intimately and could be used as this motivator, be it through what actually happened in the book, or if he decided to say, no, we'll just put a bullet in her face. She's the cautionary tale. When, when, when people talk about, you know, whatever I do, I have to worry about how this is going to impact my family and, and make my family vulnerable as a side effect. This, this is what happens. This is, this is the tale. <laughs> uh, except it's not because Joker didn't know she was Batgirl. No, but it, 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 he, I, he did know that she was Gordon's daughter. That's my point. He went after Gordon's daughter because she was Gordon's daughter because this was going to impact Jim. Okay. All right. I, <laughs> I get you. All right. I, I looked at it from the wrong direction. Okay. Later on, you know, when Snyder takes this in his own direction, he goes after specific members of the bat family because he knows how they're related to batman that's a different thing (laughs) yes absolutely and that's the story where you get that kind of thing and i think that was an excellent story too but that's also something we have to talk about if this if this uh bat girl 49 is in fact trying to retcon things but we'll get to that oh we'll get to that that. (laughs) so so yeah it's the concept of uh, oh they just fridged batgirl she wasn't batgirl she wasn't going to be batgirl Anytime soon. It just, it wasn't going to happen. The other argument is whether it's actually fridging. And oh, she's I can, not dead. <laughs> I, I don't think that matters. Yeah. I don't. Uh, I am willing to accept fridging as, you know, violence against a female character to motivate a male character. Okay. I'll stipulate to that. Because I, I think that's probably the most accurate definition that people who use fridging intended to be. Okay. I am not sure you can really make that case except for the motivation of <laughs> that the Joker intends for Gordon to go insane. I'm not sure you can really argue that this was done to motivate Batman. Because Batman was already looking for him anyway. Batman was clearly ready to do almost anything to bring the Joker in right from the beginning. Right when he realizes some dude has replaced him in Arkham, yeah, he begins basically torturing the guy right in front of Commissioner Gordon. <laughs> I mean, he's screaming, do you understand what you've let loose? He, It's not, you know, oh, well, you know, the Joker, he'll get up to some shenanigans and I'm sure he'll come across my rat. No, it's he's public enemy number one. He yeah. is beginning the investigation immediately. I mean, and also Batman doesn't need an extra kick in the pants <laughs> to want to go after the Joker. No. The reason he's at Arkham Asylum 
is because he knows he hates the Joker enough already to maybe kill him. And that's before he does a Joker does a damn thing to Barbara or Gordon, anybody. He already knows I might kill this guy. I am against murder, but I might kill him. He because already the, hates him enough to yeah, kill him. Yeah, because the, the the level of of evil and mayhem that Joker unleashes upon the world, he appears to be a character, uh, rightly, who cannot be rehabilitated. So what do you do after a certain point if they won't rehabilitate and if they can't be properly punished in a way that would cause them to rethink their behavior? See, I don't even think it's that intellectual. And I think the scene that proves that for me is when he's in the Batcave and doing his initial investigation, looking for the Joker, and he he tells Alfred, I don't know who he is any more than he knows who I am. How can two people who don't know each other hate each other so much? It's because they really just want to fuck. <laughs> it's misplaced aggression. But that's a separate argument. That argument it's a separate is, argument. That's an argument that you could make. That's an <laughs> argument that's been made in a dozen Axel Braun porno parodies. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we're, we're not going to make it It's a here. separate, different psychological reading of the, the book. My point is, my point <laughs> is that Batman acknowledges he hates the Joker. This is not an intellectual, I can't rehabilitate him and he's dangerous and he constantly gets out. Gordon laments uh, just before Joker breaks into his apartment. He's like, oh, every time we lock him up, he gets out. The Batman is, I hate him. Yeah. And I... I <laughs> I'm desperately trying to find a way to get out of this without it becoming, I'm going to kill him. Yeah. But I want to kill him. Yeah. So he's already got that motivation before anything happens with Jim Gordon or Barbara Gordon. Um, And then what happens after Batman learns what happened about Barbara? You do get the one moment where he hears about the pictures and he crushes the Joker card in his hand. But otherwise, yeah, his first motivation is he, he comforts her. He tells her it'll be all right. And then he goes out and does the same Batman shit he'd have done no matter what. Right. You know, he's still shaking up the underworld and, you know, beating people. It's what, There's nothing extraordinary about his street investigation, at least that I could see. Right. Where he's clearly haunted by it. No, he's doing this. And then even when he finds Joker uh, and there's the initial battle and he sort of drives Joker off into the funhouse... Batman then, you know, d- does he chase him down? Does he rip out his fucking back straps and piss in the wound? <laughs> no, he lets him go to check on Gordon. And he tells Gordon, I'm going to stay here with you. I'm going to let him get away mm-hmm. to make sure you're okay. This is Batman being Batman. Yeah. You know, he's he he is ultimately a good guy. <laughs> so that I am not sure I buy the idea that, oh, more did this to motivate Batman to do something terrible because he never does. He acts like Batman through the entire book. Yeah. And when he finally does stop Joker, he does it by the book. He doesn't normally Batman would beat him senseless. Now, granted it was Jim Gordon who said, no, it's, we have to show him my way works. You can make the argument that, uh, Oh, okay. And that's uh, some kind of reverse fridging where it takes a man to convince it. But I don't, I don't know. I'm not I'm not convinced that what happened to Barbara was a greater motivation for anything that happened to the rest of the story than anything else. And, and that would be and I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to make an argument that I think is possible to make that it's not really a fridging I I think it's that. Okay. No, I I think that's a reasonable interpretation of events. I 
I think it also serves to prove further to Joker that this whole concept of just one bad day. No, not only did Batman defeat you by not beating you bloody. <laughs> yeah. It was after a series of events that are arguably horrific and that one should not have to endure ever. And it's the kind of thing that would other other lesser people would buckle under. Yeah, absolutely. The <laughs> There's a certain power to the sequence of Joker saying, I know you had a bad day. Yeah. Something caused you to dress up like a flying rat. Yeah. (laughs) But at the same time, it's there's a lot of power to, yeah, I had a bad day and at least I'm channeling it positively. And by tuning up criminals. (laughs) Yeah. Living in a cave, a literal cave. Yeah. As as somebody might say, is dressing up like Dracula. (laughs) punch the mentally incompetent but that's not mine that's the same podcast host you've you've guessed who it is i do have a lot of respect for him i don't necessarily like their podcast we just wanted to argue this from our our side yeah i think he's (laughs) he's too young to understand some of the history you damn fucking kids but but yeah it's i i think batman acted in a way that if he was investigating what happened to barbara or joe blow from falmouth yeah he would have acted the same way right so that's the only argument I can make for it's not a fridging. I don't see how uh, yeah, again, Joker's entire plan kind of involves some kind of fridging against Commissioner Gordon. There has to be if you're going to do a 48-page story, there have to be known characters there. You have to be able to use a certain amount of shorthand. You don't have the real estate to create Sergeant Stadenko. He's a good man on the Gotham police who we've never met before. And therefore have no emotional investment in. Yes. And his niece, Sadie Stadenko. Who j- it's, yeah, you could do the same story. It's not going to have the same impact. To have the impact, it needs to be known characters. And if it's going to be Jim Gordon, then it has to be someone around Jim Gordon. You know, it's, uh, are you going to get all hot and bothered if, if Harvey Bullock takes a bullet in the neck? Uh, maybe he's been around longer, but no, it's, that's not going to drive Gordon insane. He's seen dead cops before. Right. It's, so it has to be Barbara. I think the biggest argument to be made here is should the pictures have been taken or should Barbara have been shot in the face? And for good or ill, I think Barbara should have been shot in the fucking face. I think it falls with, the the whole symmetry of this maybe Joker origin far better with Batman's origin, and I think that's if there's a the biggest misstep, it's yeah. That. If you're gonna if you're gonna commit the violence on on the character, commit. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it feels as though yeah, they weren't quite ready to commit. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's you now the thing is, the reality is Alan Moore does this kind of shit all the time, right? You know, Kid Miracle Man raped and murdered his way through London, and there was the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. So Moore was going to do this. Right. You know, and and the reality, if you take a step back, what's more fucking shocking, injuring Batgirl or killing her? You know, ask Jim Starlin, who who wrote Death in the Family two years later. Yeah, that's a good point. So, you know, when it comes to the, you know, oh, they told me it was okay to cripple the bitch and... Alan Moore remembers what he wants to remember. He believes what he wants to believe. I, I would love to ask him. Did you ask if you could kill her first? Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that would be a great question. And he'd get all offended and walk out of the room. But, you know, you could ask him. Yeah. So, that being said. <laughs> yes. Yes. 
given the historical context of of Batgirl and her retirement and therefore now we've got just a a Barbara Gordon who is everyday librarian Barbara Gordon. <laughs> yep. Given that this is a Joker story, not even really a Batman story, it's a Joker story. Yes, totally. Does this story stand and deserve to remain in continuity? I honestly, when it comes to continuity, like I said, we've we've I've been reading comics for 40 years. I have seen hundreds of stories that I loved at the time written out of continuity. I've lived through Crisis. I've lived through the New 52. I've lived now through Secret Wars. I've lived through One More Day. I've lived through Flash Rebirth and Green Lantern Rebirth. Stories that I love have been retconned the fuck away all the time. I'm a big boy. I can handle it. Do I think The Killing Joke is a good enough story to be in Batman continuity? Fucking absolutely. I think it's still a classic. I think given the time it was written and the way it was written, it is big in a way that you can't ignore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and some people tried to write big stories like that. You know, Jim Starlin's Batman the Cult. Oh, yeah. I got a soft spot for it. Clearly, DC was saying, this is the next big thing because it's got elements of the dark. See, here's the beginning of the Batmobile from Dark Knight Returns. This is important. This matters. It's Batman with a gun. Batman broke The story's not a classic. <laughs> I got a soft spot for it. It doesn't hold up. The Dark Knight, the Dark Knight Returns holds up. The Killing Joke holds up. Okay. Um, if they ripped it out of continuity tomorrow, would I be upset? Uh, maybe, but it still stands on its own. I think it's a strong enough story to stand on its own. Absolutely. I think that it's it's strong enough to stand on its own, and I think that whether it was intended or not to be part of continuity, it clearly influenced a lot of story going forward eventually we have oracle now granted barbara was in the discard pile and they found something to do with her oh yeah but they brought her back in such a way that you didn't have a character like that and and we really haven't had one since um who is wheelchair bound has to rely on on her intellect um becomes a major player in the the bat world because she is the conduit through which all information travels and and she brings herself up on her own <laughs> you know there's no magic wand waved she becomes integral to you know batman to to the birds of prey line um her relationship with dick grayson <laughs> oh to the justice league to the Grant justice Morrison's league jla yeah you know, there's a killer scene where, oh, Christ, I can't remember which, uh, Prometheus yeah, yep. you know, tells her, I have the technology. I can make you walk again. All you have to do is turn your back on the Justice League. She says, no, I won't do it. Right. So. <laughs> so while I understand that there are people who are fans of Barbara Gordon and, and feel the way she was treated in a story that was written in 1998 was not worthy of her character. I think that writers over time have done a tremendous service to her in terms of allowing her to move forward and be an inspiration to others who have had trauma visited upon them. To take that away seems a disservice to those readers. I, I'll 
I'll go you one further. I'll say Barbara Gordon not shot in The Killing Joke mm-hmm. is no longer a, a viable character in DC. Is yeah. long since forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. Given. Yeah. yeah given, she's married and and popping out kids. Yeah. Given. Uh, crisis and the moods around Batman in the late 80s, you know, up through a large part of the 90s. I mean, the idea of Batman as absolute lone calculating Avenger was the whole driving force behind the Azrael Batman. You know, okay, you think you want this. You know, I think it would have been, yeah, around 99, 2000 before anybody would even remotely have said, we need to expand the Batman family. She may have come back at that point, but somebody may well have grabbed that character and done something else with it. Or more likely, yeah, the character's been sitting there doing nothing for nobody since 1987. Yeah, they might have decided to have her become a cop or something. (laughs) So John Ostrander and Kim Yale pulling her out to become the shadow operative oracle for Suicide Squad in the 80s. For the character, having longevity was probably the best thing for the character. Absolutely. Now, otherwise, you know, she's gone the way of, you know, Chief O'Hara. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, ancillary characters that nobody needs from Batman. Right. I really think that would have happened. Right. And and they had the opportunity. I mean, the New 52 has been fraught with a variety of issues since its inception. Oh, yeah. They had the opportunity when they reintroduced Batgirl to, you know, she could have been walking and and... They could have just completely made it so that this didn't happen. <laughs> they, th- that yeah. would have been the time. Yeah, you want to retcon it, do it then. Yeah. I, I get why they didn't. Well, and also, that. Gail Simone, who who was helming it at the time, really actually fought against her not being Oracle and wanted to keep her um, paralyzed. Yeah. And, and eventually had to go with it. Um, but the fact that she had, she's still suffering post-traumatic shock from her interaction with Joker, even though she's now walking, has been this this thread throughout all of death of the family and and what leads to her going to Burnside in the first place to start over. Yeah. It's look, if if Cameron Stewart and the rest of the creative team of the current Batgirl want to retcon this out of existence, have the fucking courage of your convictions and stand by it and fucking say, this is a retcon, and as of now, that never happened. Yeah. So, yeah, at the start of convention season, you guys stand up and explain that Oracle never happened. Yeah, a character a character that is, again, representation for a certain group that does not get a lot of representation in comics. Exactly. Yeah, say, I, I, I don't want that to have happened. I made that never was. You know, explain to Cassandra Kane fans that she was never Batgirl because we never needed her to be Batgirl. Or the very vocal Stephanie Brown Society. Oh, yeah. And if you do do that, I can recommend a good paint guy to buff the fucking key scratches out of your car doors if you try to do that because <laughs> you are not going to be a popular human being if you fuck with Stephanie Brown, if you've been to a convention at all in the last X years. It feels, again, I get what it's like to feel passionate about a character. Um but it feels like for a certain contingent who who want her to be well and to want her to have never had to go through that trauma, this fictional character. <laughs> yeah, but... There's a certain level of fetishization of Barbara Gordon that, to me, 
if you're gonna if you're gonna cling to this character that tightly, what what happens to Batgirl? You know, you, you're losing out on the opportunity to have a Cassandra Cain in the role, to have a Stephanie Brown in the role. To you know, how many Robins have there been? <laughs> too many. <laughs> I mean, it, the, the whole hate, hate Damien too many. The the whole premise of of the the drunk Batman Twitter account is oh lost another Robin today yeah um <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and even going into the new fifty two that was the whole like how many Robins had had Batman been through oh absolutely <laughs> yeah it's uh, the, yeah the, they tried so hard to keep Batman continuity after the new fifty two and for it to work you know he needs to have gone through like a Robin every fifteen months yeah you know and. Yeah, just gets one killed and immediately just pulls another off the pile. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's a mantle. Um, like the question was a mantle. How many people would have been pissed off if Renee Montoya never became the question, and it was always Vic Sage? You know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you you deny yourself storytelling opportunities when you choose to wave a wand and make something go away. You know. Even the shitty Birds of Prey television series, I liked it, but not everybody did, which is why it went away. Yeah. Um, allowed Barbara Gordon to, you know, become Oracle, and and through her own doing, was able to stand on her own two feet for brief periods of time. But she was able to pull through the trauma and move on, and and better herself. Why would you not allow her to have that growth? Why do you need to be her fairy godmother and and make it never was? Well, it's just the the weird sense of okay, we're going to at least give the implication that this is a false memory, even though that false memory was a driving force behind Barbara's behavior in death of the family, right. which is what got Barbara to Burnside anyway. So the entire motivation for this thing that we have created, we're saying was invalid. It's just this weird Ouroboros of suck that just doesn't make any well, sense and, to And me. also, for a false memory, it seems to be one that plenty of other people believe were was reality in terms of their interactions with her over the course of her book. Yeah. you've By doing this, you're implying that death of the family doesn't really make any sense and you're implying that a large part of gail simone's run on the character after the new 52 was wrong and you're ripping big chunks out of post-crisis pre-flashpoint batman and jla and suicide squad and birds of prey you know look and if you want to do it that's okay I lived through it on one more day. I've lived through it. I've been reading comics my entire life. Stories that I love have been just made to never happen. I can still go read them. Mm-hmm. I'm a big enough adult. This is comics, but comics is business. And sometimes for business, you have to do certain things to, yep. to keep things going. But if this is what you want to do, then butch up and fucking do it. Don't pretend like, oh, it doesn't matter whether the killing joke is in continuity or not. You can't frivolously blow away the killing joke because you don't fucking like it. Right. It's got problematic elements. Absolutely it does. But it's a hugely important story in the history of Batman. And yes, in the history of Barbara Gordon. If you want to say this story never happened, realistically, 
every Joker story that has been written since 1988 is this Joker. Right. This is the turning point. This is the beginning of it. It is hugely important. You know, and if you want to, if you say it's problematic enough that it should be blown out of continuity, then fine. But fucking do it. Don't fucking and, half-ass it and pussy well, and around. That, that's and, just it. It's like and dog whistle to a particular audience that you, you know, see, we, we try, you, you don't have to pay attention to this anymore. No, do it or don't. And I really don't care which one it is, but make the decision and stand by it. And understand that you're not just sanitizing the one thing. You're fucking up whole threads that go through so many other books and so many other stories and, and affect so many other characters. Yeah, this is plot, not theme. You exactly. don't get to say, oh, this can be, no, it either happened or it didn't. And if you want to say it didn't happen, that's okay. But yeah, don't, oh, I, I want to make the, these readers happy so they can ignore it. No, it's all you're going to do is make them say it's a half measure and you should have blown it away and you're going to piss the rest of us off. Exactly. So do it or don't. I really don't care which, but this was just infuriating. <laughs> as as that book has been since Gail Simone left. <laughs> <laughs> Again, we're not the target audience. But, okay, we're not the target audience, but... But they're not giving many any reasons to come back. All they're doing is piling, like, like week on top of week. <laughs> I may not be the target audience for the current Batgirl, but I'm absolutely the target audience... And was the target audience for the killing joke. And if you're going to fuck with that, okay. <laughs> yeah. But do it right or don't do it. All right. There there are things in the story you can't, it's hard to defend. Yep. But historically, it is hugely important and deserves better than, oh, no, maybe it was a false memory. Exactly. Now, fuck you. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Um, you're saying that, that Oracle never was an Oracle is huge and important. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, a strange subject for us to hit a 28 year old comic book that's been analyzed and analyzed and analyzed. But yeah, it was just a combination of this sort of pussyfooting, you know, oh, we changed something. No, you, you didn't change anything. You're just pandering to a, a certain audience. That audience deserves stories to be told for them. Mm -hmm. But if the service is going to be, we're going to make this story have gone away, then do it. Yeah, the rest it. of us can take it. Yeah. So yeah, just the the combination of this, the pandering wuss, we made it a false memory with yeah younger readers who were not there at the time and maybe not taking into account the what was happening when Dark Knight uh, Returns and The Killing Joke came out right after Crisis as the movie was coming out. Yep. It's just, it, it was really important to to both of us, I think, Amanda, to, mm -hmm. all right, let's 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 try and put this into context and defend what's going on. And there are parts that you can't or that are difficult to, but to chuck the whole thing out. <laughs> or even so, <laughs> again, chuck it. I don't care. But... Don't pretend like uh, it's not important enough that we don't have to make a decision. Uh, and and to to say that the book is is not worthy. Well, all right, you don't like it. That's fine. There's stuff I don't like. To to go on a giant crusade about it because you don't like it. Well, <laughs> that's 
I have a problem with that. Trying trying to dissuade people from letting them read something and and make up their mind on their own. No, <laughs> that's that's not giving credit to to the work. At the same time, we spent an hour and a half ranking out this. Well, no, not really. We didn't spend a lot of time ranking out the particular Batgirl story. We did a little. It was kind of pseudo cyberpunky. <laughs> it was. Um... I've seen the technique it's, that they used in that story used in Batman and Robin Eternal. I've seen it in um, Iron Man. I've seen it. <laughs> I've seen it in Greek plays, and then it was all a dream. Yeah. Or was it? And then Jason comes out of the lake. It's, yeah, somehow I got <laughs> somehow I got from Lysistrata maybe to Friday the 13th. I don't know how I did that. I mean, the best I could, I would hope for in, in Batgirl 49 is, um, there's still some malicious AI, mal- malware in the AI, and, um, it's all gonna go wrong. <laughs> That's a level of computing in that book. There's some malicious, uh, malware in the AI, so you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna use Visual Studio to whip up a GUI and do a penetration test on the IP address. Don't do that. That's like, that's like an assault. You crazy bitch, you'll kill us both. Um, I mean, but the other, piece too is these things shift and change so the people who are are um frothing at the mouth and angry about the killing joke and are taking batgirl as a character in a different direction in an attempt to sanitize her story you know what 20 30 years from now when somebody decides you know what her paralysis is a fixed point in time no matter what happened they're gonna be just as angry yeah <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, God, DC would kill to get the doctor. They need that kind of character yeah. to get their readership up. That's that's just it. Like, you know, all right, take it where you want. I'll come back when it, it's my story again. It's not my story right now. Uh, yeah. But it's a... I didn't want to talk about all of this. We didn't want to talk about all of this to, to rank Batgirl out. No. Uh, to rank the, the current book out again. The, again. So easy, though. <laughs> we are not the target audience, and that is okay. Yes. It's absolutely fine. But if you're going to fuck with a killing joke, have the courage of your convictions and make a goddamn decision. Yeah. And and consider some other perspectives than, than your own reaction to the book in terms of whether or not it's important enough to stay. That's right. But make a decision. Come on! Show a little backbone, will ya? All right. <laughs> So, yeah, uh, feel free to uh, rant at us on Facebook and email <laughs> us hates. And <laughs> we can take it. We can take it. I've been called worse <laughs> recently. All right. You want to talk about a couple of uh, this week's comics Let's now do that, that we've uh, done 28 year old books and something from last week? Right. All right. Which one do you want to start with? Let's start with Escape from New York. All right. Uh <coughs> Hold on. Number 15. Let me get my notes in order. Yes, Escape from New York 15, written by Christopher Sabella. Uh, art by Maxim Simic. That's what it looks like. What kind of parents would name their kid that? Anyway. Um, yeah, look, this is, a, this is a weird book to to recommend. This one just struck me as I was reading it this week because it's been on our polls from the beginning. Amanda, you and I are both big John Carpenter fans. Mm-hmm. So this and Big Trouble in Little China, we've been getting uh, from – these are Boom Studios books, right? Yes, this is a Boom Studios Yes, uh, right from the beginning. Uh, look, we're right in the middle of a story arc in this issue. If you buy it, you're not going to know who all the characters are. You're not going to know why Snake Plissken – of Escape from New York is in Cleveland. Well, now he's trying to escape from Cleveland. Who wouldn't? Yeah. Well, 
Who yeah. wouldn't? Yeah, that, that doesn't need a, a movie. That's just day to day. You're not going to know what Snake did to get into this, why he's with the people he's with, why the United States police force is after him. But you know what? It doesn't matter because this is just a fun issue. And the way it's put together, it really doesn't – it could stand almost on its own. You're, just, you're dropped into this moment of Snake's life. He's with these people. They're clearly the people he's with and surrounded with. They're just having a blast fucking around with the government, <laughs> stealing shit. Snake's clearly having a blast just following these people around. Sure, whatever you want to do. Let's blow up some dirty cops <laughs> and try to escape from the government. Whatever. I got nothing else going on. It's just, it's a book full of people who are sick of being kicked around by a corrupt government. There's some some things here to kind of speak to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go on. No, it just it, it taps into without being like overtly political, just everything that's going on right now if you're watching <laughs> um, American politics right now. So. Really? Is it is President Camacho <laughs> idiocracy in this one? <laughs> just just saying. <laughs> yeah, it's Chicago rally. Just, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not date this. But, but yeah, it's just, it's a bunch of people who are tired of being kicked around. They got a bunch of money and a bunch of fucking guns. Yep. It's all right. We're going to shoot everybody who comes near here. We're taking it back. Yeah. It's, it's just big and fun and violent. And yeah, you don't need to know who these people are. As long as you know, Snake Pliskin kicks ass. Yes. And he's just, all right, I'll work with you people, whatever. That's all you need to know. It's a rare book. In a longer arc where it's just, all right, yeah, this one I could give to somebody and you could have a good time with it. Yeah. And you know what? I'm not going to spoil the ending of it. Um, Chris Sabella is doing fucking awesome work with this book. But the the last page, there there's a a thing that Fliskin must have just pulled out of his ass. I, I don't know where else he would have stored it. Yeah, it's... <laughs> It's one of those things that uh, I've been reading it all along, but this is the book I often read. Uh, okay, we go to the comic store, then we go to the bar. We, I'm drunk. Let's oh, escape from New York. Awesome. Let's, uh, so I, I forget certain things. But uh, but yes, the the ending of this that made me laugh out loud when I got and to it. And you're like, no, you have to read this now. I'm like, okay. Yep. It, it doesn't matter. Assume an earlier burglary put something in Snake's hands. And yeah, it's just a big, fun ending. Yes. It, it's not perfect. No. And unfortunately, the, the biggest problems with it are uh, on the part of, uh, what's it, Simic? Yep. What kind of parents would name their kid that? <laughs> Look, his, his art is serviceable. It's often really abstract, but you can, you can tell who everybody is and what's going on. Uh, the problem is he really, a lot in this issue, loses track of where people and things are yeah. on a panel-to-panel basis. There's a page where... Snake's in the passenger seat, and Sadie, who's one of the people he's with, is driving, and could, has the wheel in her hands driving. And in the next panel, <laughs> she's in the passenger seat, and Snake's in the driver's seat. Nobody has their hands on any wheel. Two panels, <laughs> two panels later, based on where the word balloons outside of the truck are, they've switched again. Right. Um, and that's not the only time it happens. There's there's one page where panel to panel, Snake is shooting left-handed, then right-handed, and left-handed again. It's a, well, that's just because he's a badass. I, I'm willing to accept that for, for those. But it's one of those things. It, it happens enough. It's, it's not the end of the world, but it's, it's distracting and it's confusing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That said, yeah, sort of the, 
I don't want to say scribbly, but sort of abstract art. Uh, you know, it kind of works with Snake. Just sort of, yep, it, it's an environment. Yeah. And you know, things are – I thought it worked pretty well. But, yeah, he really – the artist really needs to pay more attention to the details because as these things as these things switch around, it's like, wait, what? And if I have to stop in the middle of a book and go, wait, what? <laughs> Particularly a book as fast-paced and just driven as this one is, it's – you, you want to watch that. Right. Yeah, it's certainly not enough for me to say, oh, no, it's it's not terrible, but there's distractions there mm-hmm. that a book this fast-paced does not need. Right. But, uh, yeah, I mean, look, this book has always sort of been the movie, but blown up to 11 with whatever weird satiric stuff Sabella wants to put in. <laughs> yeah. You know, just sort of extrapolating, well, if New York is like this, then Florida must be like this. And, oh, Jesus, Texas. <laughs> now it's Cleveland. <laughs> And yeah, this well, we is. We always knew that Cleveland was pretty far gone. I mean, there's a Hellmouth, um, if you were to believe Buffy, under yeah. Cleveland. Is there? Yes. It's been a, which Slayer came from that Hellmouth? Uh, that was the alternate universe, Buffy. That's the one where Willow and Xander are vampires. Oh, fuck me. I didn't realize <laughs> Cleveland was a part of that story. <laughs> yeah. I'm distracted by the, the bodice on, <laughs> on Willow in that be. one. But. <laughs> But yeah, this book is just that same kind of thing. All right, what would the world be like outside of New York with this? Just cranked all the way up. It's just, it's a lot of fun. And it's one where, all right, if you just want to get the tone of what Sabella's trying to do, there's enough here you don't need to know what came before. Yeah. You know, you, you can jump right into it and have fun with this particular issue. Not every issue of this book is like that. This one is. So if you're by a local comic store and looking for something to read at lunchtime that's just fast and fun. Get this. Escape from New York 15. Really good one. Another really good one. <laughs> uh, Doctor Strange, Doctor number, Strange, number six. Jason uh, Aaron. Yep, art Chris by Bacalo. Yeah, art by Chris Bacalo. Yes. Now they've been they've been on this from the beginning, but it's I I just I really enjoy the way they work together. Yeah, I don't think we've done. I went back and and looked. I don't think we've done a review of any of the the Doctor Strange books. We've talked about it. We've talked it, about it, yeah. But the first issue dropped right in the middle of the move to the uh, all-new, all-different <laughs> Crisis on Infinite Midlife's home office. <laughs> so I, I doubt we would have had a chance to talk about it that week. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I know we talked about it when it was announced because mm-hmm. I remember talking about, I was looking forward to it because not only am I a big fan of Jason Aaron's writing, I mean, if you look at some of the shit that he's written, you, you go from Scalped to Wolverine to Thor I think he's made it pretty clear. The Southern Bastards. Southern Bastards. <laughs> he can write any genre of yeah. comics, pretty much. Um, and I fell in love with Chris Bacalo's art first on Shade the Changing Man. So, and that was a book about, you know, it wasn't magic, it was madness, but just mm. weird shit happening all around. And so, yeah, a book about magic where he could do that kind of thing. It's like, oh, he's getting back to the shit I loved him on to begin with. Right. And, uh, the the creators are the only reason I started putting this book on my polls. Cause yeah, because you're not a magic guy. No, I'm not. I'm and I've never been a big fan of Doctor Strange. Yeah, I I love old Steve Ditko art. It's hard to relate to a rich, brilliant doctor who can float around astrally and peep on people. And, <laughs> you know, he's always said by the hoary hosts of Hogoth. Okay, that's big purple Stanley dialogue. I get it. Doctor it's, Strange, Doctor Creeper. Yeah, it's. <laughs> But it's not the kind of dialogue that's going to get you all itchy in the shorts and excited. <laughs> this Doctor Strange says, abracadabra, you son of a bitch. And that speaks to you on a very visceral level. It's a little level. more relatable. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, might shout that at work tomorrow. 
yeah. when I decide I want to come home and take an extended leave. <laughs> you know, a sabbatical, unpaid. I think you're going to go to work and announce your presence with authority by saying abracadabra, you son of a bitch. Uh, the first time my code works tomorrow. That's what it's going to be. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's... Technically, this issue is kind of a continuation of the first few. Uh, Doctor Strange has been learning that magic's, magic's under attack. Mm-hmm. And uh, has been across uh, the multiverse. Right. But this is the beginning of the real battle. Mm-hmm. So as a jumping on point, it's it's not perfect, but it's not terrible. You don't really need to know much more than magic is under attack and there is a community of magic in New York that Doctor Strange is a part of that you meet in here at least yeah. a little bit. Well, and also, um, there's, he had been warned in previous issues that the way he was using magic, um, he was, he was being, um, heedless of, of the cost of magic. And so the bill was going to come due. Yes. This is the bill coming due. It, it certainly is. There's, uh, some spoilers here. Uh, there's a group called the Empirical. Get it? Yeah. Empirical. They hate magic. Uh. They love science. Empirical. <laughs> I like Jason Aaron, but not everything's going to be a Picasso. Empirical. <laughs> anyway, uh, they, they've been going from dimension to dimension. Yeah, killing the Sorcerer Supreme in those dimensions. Now they're here to kill Doctor Strange and destroy magic on Prime Earth, mm. or whatever the fuck they're calling the 6161 <laughs> these days. I can't keep track of it. Ugh, I'm drooling. Sorry. Jesus. What? Baxter Brewing Company. Powerful IPA. <laughs> Good stuff. Anyway, uh, so... So yeah, this is the first real huge battle between Strange and the Empirical, but uh, Aaron also spends a lot of time showing what the draining of magic is doing to the rest of the world, which helps really show the stakes of what Strange is dealing with, because otherwise it would be Doctor Strange against a bunch of robots and mm-hmm. some bald dick. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we we see other Marvel magic characters under attack from like the Scarlet Witch to, to guys I've never fucking heard of. There's Count Chaos. Yeah. If, if your name's Chaos, <clears throat> I think you're doomed. on the nose. Yeah, you're you're doomed to either crime or magic. What kind of parents would name their kid that? Chaos with a K and a Z. <laughs> or you're a DJ in a really shitty club. Hey, this is the count. K-O-A-Z. <laughs> I was thinking more like like a like a nightclub, but <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> An old radio guy. What can I tell you? <laughs> but uh so yeah, you can see that this is not just happening to Doctor Strange, but to all the other characters uh, that deal with magic. Uh, you can also see the effect it's having just in general on magic. He makes a point to show magical items in areas, mm-hmm. and he's got some really interesting verbal and visual, visual imagery on that. Uh, one of them, I'll do a quote, the, uh, the last of the fairy guardians of the Amazon just slit her own throat. Mm. All right, I, I get this is probably not good. <laughs> Every devil in hell suddenly knows fear. That's not bad. The best one is in uh, sort of after the climax of the main story, uh, there's a vignette showing other magic users you've never heard of Mm -hmm. necessarily in the Marvel Universe being affected by magic disappearing. And the best one, oh, it's a kid in England with glasses (laughs) and a a bandage on his forehead getting shoved in a closet to guarantee he never becomes Harry Potter. With a very particular wand. Yes. (laughs) So it's like, all right. There's one positive on it. He's just crying. He's just crying. (laughs) Part of me thinks that part of my, if I'm going to say I'm a geek, I have to read Harry Potter. Okay. I've just never, I've never had an interest in it. I saw the one movie. (laughs) I don't even remember. That was Prisoner of Azkaban. That was all right. There was Harry Potter and Hans Gruber and (laughs) not Gondolf. (laughs) 
<laughs> and something about seducing. You know, do you want me to collect it? Yeah, it was weird. I didn't get it. It's okay. I it was. I came in in the middle. No, actually, no. Wait, the one we saw was the Half Blood Prince. That's the one that we saw in the theater. Okay. It was yeah. But <laughs> and Hans Gruber turns out to be the uh, the Half Blood Prince. Okay. Everybody thinks it's going to be be Harry, but it's not. It's just one of those. As a longtime comics reader, I've always you know had the automatic reaction of that was stolen from Neil Gaiman's Book of Magic, and because kind of was yeah. So <laughs> uh, that's a different story. That's a different different episode. <laughs> yeah. That, so it's a yeah. My gut here was yeah. You fucked Harry Potter. I'm like I don't know a billion readers. Yeah, I mean I suppose. Why am I right? Yeah. <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, that's a whole different thing. I'm certainly not going to read it today. Yeah. but uh, You read fast, you'll get through it. Yeah, but look, when it comes to this book, it's the characterization that Aaron has given Doctor Strange in this that keeps me really coming back, because he's almost the antithesis of how he's been presented throughout history. You know, it's... <laughs> I'll start by saying, you don't get a ton of that characterization in this issue, That's so it's a, it's a hell of a thing to say. It's, oh, the characterization, but... What Aaron's been doing is taking the idea of a guy with this job that constant causes him to constantly see this terrible shit. Yeah. Just horrible stuff. And it gives him like the arrogance and confidence of a top shelf surgeon. Right. But also like the gallows humor of a homicide cop. Yeah. So it makes Doctor Strange far more fun and relatable, at or least the, for me. Yeah. Or the gallows humor of an ER surgeon. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know. Compare the old days of Doctor Strange. Wong, I must have my potions in complete silence. And in this, you get, oh, you want me to beg? I'm begging you to stop being a fool before I rip out your fucking soul. <laughs> All right, one of those I'm going to get behind. Yeah. Yeah. So, Aaron's, he's got such a sense of humor. And even in this book, in the middle of this horrible battle, it's uh, having the sanctum... Uh, sanctum san... Ah. I can never, I can read it. Sanctum Santorum. Yes, thank you. The Doctor Strange's house on Bleecker Street. Yes. Uh, attack the Empirical. <laughs> and then and the, the robots shout, beware the shrubbery. <laughs> and that's just fucking funny. I don't care it's who like you Monty are. like Monty Python. A shrubbery! <laughs> yeah, but it's in the middle of this horrible battle for the future of magic. <laughs> beware the shrubbery! But uh, the action in this, it's, it's well-written enough and show don't tell enough that you can tell how desperate Doctor Strange is becoming. Yeah. I mean, he goes from like magic bolts to like throwing cars at this guy to literally exploiting the despair of suicidal people. Yeah. Until finally he just, you know, creates this force thing around him and just punches and punches, you know, until finally there's, there's nothing left. So just the escalation of desperation is obvious in the action. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Bacalo's art is exactly what I want in this kind of thing. I mean, from back to Shade, depicting this kind of impossible shit is what I've always liked from him. And that weird out-of-focus force thing that Strange puts around him when he does the abracadabra, you son of a bitch. Right. You know, it's it's done in such a way that it's force, but it's not clear, and it's sort of out-of-focus, so I can't really see what it is, and it really works for... No, this is a, it's just a thing. It's not, oh, I can identify what this is. It's force. It's power. So it's, it really works. And that one panel that is really, it's really a, a full page spread where 
it starts off with a panel of Strange reaching to the earth to pull power out of it. Mm-hmm. And it, you follow the force that he's pulling out down to the sewers and then the buried water mains and then just the darkness of the earth. I would yeah. buy that page in a minute. Oh, it's, it's a great page. So, yeah, I mean, this is not a perfect jumping on point, but it is a part one for what is really sort of a greater story. You know, like I said, all you need to know is Doctor Strange is kind of an arrogant prick, but fun. It's there called are, The Last Days of Magic. Yes, there are other magic users in New York that uh, you meet a few of them here, but mm-hmm. you need to know there's a magic community. Doctor Strange is part of it. And that's, yeah, that's really all you need. Because, yeah, this is, it's just, this has been a great book from the beginning. This is another solid one. And uh, if, uh, what's his name? Scott Derrickson, I think, is directing the movie. Yes. <laughs> yes, he is. Checks the notes. Yes. Uh, if he can capture half of this for the movie, it'll be excellent. Yeah. Then again, yes, I'm checking my notes. This is the guy who directed uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still with Keanu Reeves. We'll call it a maybe. We'll go with maybe on this one. When I come back to you, I can't head desk. There's a mic in the way. Yes, sorry. <laughs> oh, well. Benedict Cumberbatch. Yes. Worth the shots. Ingbert Humperdink. <laughs> Humperdink. Humperdink is Dr. Strange. That's a good place to leave, is any? Is that it? We got anything else? I think that's it. All right. Uh, let's see how we doing on time. We are at, uh, ooh, two hours. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it so. up. Let's tell everybody how to find us so that they can yell at us about our opinion about the killing joke. Yes. Or what? laud us. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll take some lauding. You know, here's a place where I'm be, uh, you know, I would encourage you to inc- to contact us and let us know what you think. <laughs> yeah. It'd be interesting. Uh, we did have so when we announced we were going to do this on Facebook, uh, we had one listener uh, send in uh, an entire essay, yeah, uh, defending Killing Joke, which actually I think I'm going to publish on the website sometime this week. Okay, it's been a, a hell of a week, so it's been hard for me to to get to it to put it all together. But yeah, I'll try to do that sometime this week. So that's how <laughs> that's how strongly people feel about this. Just sort of an idle Facebook post I put up drunk and say, yeah, we're thinking about talking about this, and yeah, it's it got a bunch of likes on it, and yeah, people. Emailing and, and emailing essays. Yeah. All right. People feel strongly. So do we. We'll talk about it. Yeah. And you can yell at us. You can always find us at our home website, crisisoninfinitemidlives.com. You can find us on base- Facebook. See, we're doing stuff on Facebook. We are. We are. <laughs> Drunkenly. Yes. Our Facebook page is Crisis on Infinite Midlives. We are on Twitter. Twitter handle is at Infinite Midlife. We are on Tumblr. We're doing not very much on Tumblr, but we are there. <laughs> Crisis on infinite midlives.tumblr.com. I suspect our opinion on the killing joke is probably going over less well on Tumblr. And that's why we will do it on Facebook. <laughs> uh, we are on iTunes. If that is your preferred way of finding podcast media, do us a favor and shoot us a review. Give us a rating. It does help new people find the show. Mm. Uh, we are on Stitcher. Yep. We are on TuneIn Radio. We're proud members of the Comics Podcast Network. And you can always email us. Nice stuff is better, but eh, we'll take hate mail. Crisis on Infinite Midlives at gmail.com. If you send dick pics, we'll make fun of you. We'll send it back. We'll rank it. <laughs> and we'll Photoshop it. <laughs> it's not a tumor. No, that's a tumor. Yeah. Don't send us dick pics. Don't. Yeah. For Christ's sake. Show some class. <laughs> we can't. You have to. 
And that is it. This has been episode 106 of the Crisis on Infinite Midlife show. I'm Rob. I'm Amanda. Thank you for listening and derp. You had to say it. We're going to get fucking dick pics now. The killing screw. <laughs>